Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So um, tonight I wanted to continue on uh, a theme that uh, seems like the trajectory of the retreat is, has been going. Um, Sharda talked about uh, opening to dukkha, opening to suffering, and uh, how important that is. Um, and last night, Howie was talking about the happiness of the Buddha and the happiness that comes from um, liberation and from seeing clearly. And I wanted to um, maybe put them uh, both together and talk about uh, seeing this as what we're doing here and the Buddhist path or the path of practice as a path of happiness, not just when you get to the end and get enlightened, but all along the way too. And part of it uh, is, as Sharda was saying, opening up to our pain and our suffering. Uh, as the Buddha was asked what, what he teaches, he said, I teach about suffering and the end of suffering. And he said, the, the more you can open up to that truth about life, the less you're afraid of it and the more you can see how to work with it and the freer you are and that leads to the highest happiness. So it's, it's very much uh, an integral part of this path to happiness and I'll talk a little bit more about it as the, uh, as the talk goes on. Um, but I wanted to uh, particularly put the focus this, uh, this evening on the other kinds of happiness that are developed as well and how, uh, what we're doing here and how we can bring this practice into our daily life uh, really opens up to um, well-being and happiness. And as uh, I'm sure uh, you know and I've, I've mentioned, I, I wrote a book called Awakening Joy um, about this because sometimes people can forget that this is a path of happiness. As, the, as Howie said last night, the Buddha was called the happy one. But the word suffering comes up a lot in this, these teachings. There's the first noble truth, there's suffering, dukkha. There's a cause of suffering, the wanting mind, attachment. There's the end of suffering and there's a path leading to the end of suffering. That's a lot of suffering, or a lot at least talk about suffering, and you can forget this is really about happiness and well-being. <clears throat> and um, the Dalai Lama starts his beautiful book, The Art of Happiness, with this line, the purpose of life is to be happy. Just let that land for a moment. The purpose of life is to be happy. 
This is the Dalai Lama, the, the, the greatest um, spokesperson for, uh, for Buddhism on the, on the planet today. The purpose of life is to be happy. Because when we open up to true well-being inside, then all of the beautiful gifts that we're given in this lifetime, all of the goodness and the love and the wisdom that maybe you, you've been uh, accessing, uh, if not glimpses, uh, deep uh, connection to the well of, of goodness and uh, the Buddha right inside, all of that can shine through you and be a gift to the world. So this is not a, a selfish or self-indulgent exercise to open up to your own happiness. It is um, perhaps the most important thing that we can do. And that's why the Buddha said, go for real happiness, go for the highest happiness, and all the others will will come through. But it's important to understand where real happiness lies. When I first got into the practice, uh, I came, as many people do, uh, with a lot of suffering. My life looked pretty good on the outside, but inside, I didn't like myself very much. I was very shy and insecure, and um, I, for much of my life, was, was quite pessimistic, thinking things wouldn't work out. Sometimes people have a hard time believing that, but you know that in, in sales, they sometimes say skeptics make the biggest converts. <laughs> that, that, that was me. And when I first heard the, the teachings, um, that um, summer of 1974, when uh, Joseph Goldstein uh, taught uh, the first uh, year at Naropa uh, Institute, now U Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, and I heard him, and I was in my own suffering, and I, I thought, uh, wow, he was saying it's possible to not be run by your neurotic thoughts. I had never entertained that as a possibility before. <laughs> But there was something in the way that he said it that I really believed, and I said, I'm going for it. So if you have a lot of suffering in your life, you might find that that can be a great source of motivation. Um, and actually, I, I had to, I had to um, uh, get one thing cleared up in my own heart before I really did go for it uh, that, that first summer. It was about, oh, uh, third or fourth class. Uh, I came into the, into the room, and I happened to be wearing uh, my New York Knicks T-shirt. In those days, I was a season ticket holder for the Knicks in their glory years. If, you, if you're old enough to remember, you know... Uh, Walt Frazier and Willis Reed and Dave DeBusher and Earl the Pearl Monroe was my favorite player, you know. And I was a season ticket holder. I'd go with my friends and my, with my friend, and it was like the hot, probably like five out of the top seven experiences up till that point in my life were in Madison Square Garden. <laughs> and I, I had this awful thought 
um, as I realized, oh, I'm wearing my Knicks shirt. And then I said, oh my goodness. Uh, and it was the first time I went up to Joseph and I, I had the, the courage to speak to him because I was kind of in awe of him. And I said, um, uh, Joseph, uh, I'm a season ticket holder to uh, the Knicks. <laughs> 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 and I wonder if I really get into this stuff, Am I going to go to Madison Square Garden and watch a game and say, nice shot, Frazier. You know. <laughs> Good move, Havlicek. Because you know. yeah. I don't know if I'm ready to sign up for that just yet. And he gave me the greatest piece of advice. He said, you'll still have your enthusiasm and your passion, but you'll probably get over a loss sooner. I said, okay. <laughs> Sign me up. I'm ready. And then I went for it. And I had what was called a long honeymoon period where I, I did a lot of retreats and it was so compelling and um, I was learning so much and I was actually changing inside and getting happier. I thought I'd found the answer to everything. You just, I would be telling my friends, you just have to be mindful, you just have to be mindful, and they'd kind of slink away from me and give me a little bit of space. It took me a while to learn to not come on so strong. Um, I did eventually. Um, but at some point, I had, um, I became very serious about my practice. I, I mentioned this the other day. Really serious about my practice dead serious about my practice with the emphasis on the dead. And I lost my joy. And I somehow um, distorted some teachings that uh, one can easily misunderstand um, and thought that uh, somehow it wasn't okay to let my natural celebratory aspect, even though I was in pain and suffering before I got into this. There was a part of me that's very passionate and loves music, loves sports, loves, loves life. And uh, I somehow distorted that. And um, even though on a conceptual level I understood better, there was uh, a feeling inside, nonverbal, that it's not okay to really let my love of life uh, out and I and I became very serious and there was a kind of a conflict within me for a while I wasn't alone in this and it's something that um, some practitioners can get into anybody ever feel that they get um, a bit too serious about their practice okay so you see you're not alone um, this is Ajahn Sumedho um, who was, who's been mentioned before in, in the talks, um, talking about this uh, problem, possible problem. He says, sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, that's the kind of Buddhism we're doing, the, uh, I think I said, the early, earliest teachings of the Buddha, the way of the elders. Sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. 
if you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. (laughs) Or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. (laughs) This has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should just feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and on how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. That is a good reflection on anicca, dukkha, and anatta, on impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and the selfless nature of reality. But it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. But once you have true insight, you find that you enjoy and delight in the beauty and the goodness of things. Because truth, beauty, and goodness delight us. In them, we find joy. So, I clearly wasn't alone in this. And after I... Uh, went through this period for some time, this confusion about the teachings. Uh, Thankfully, instead of turning away from them and saying, oh, this isn't for me, I um, decided to look deeper and see, well, what exactly did the Buddha say about happiness? He was called the happy one. It's more than than, uh, just getting over your suffering. And there's happiness in many, many different lists. You know, this, these, this body of teaching has loads of lists. As you see, joy is one of the four Brahma-viharas. The, the third building, mudita, is joy. Joy is one of the seven factors of enlightenment. It's one of the uh, five uh, absorption factors. Uh, there's many lists that have different flavors of one could call it joy or well-being, whether it's uh, sukha, which means happiness, pamoja means gladness, piti, rapture or bliss. Uh, There's contentment, there's peace, many, many flavors. So when I say awakening joy, I'm really talking about all the different flavors of well-being. It's a little bit catchier to say awakening joy than awakening well-being so that's why I use that title but if the word joy (laughs) trips you up just think of it in terms of of for you how you connect with well-being and we all want that well-being we all want to be happy does anybody here not want to be happy and if you're someone who's kind of holding back your hand, but you'd really feel like saying, yeah, I like being grumpy. That's just your way of being happy. (laughs) Whatever turns you on. But you have to understand that everything that you do, and, and don't take my word for this, check this out for yourself. Everything you do is motivated because something in you says, this will make me feel a little better, 
or this will make me feel a little less bad. Isn't that so? So even if you don't realize it, there is something in you that is rooting for your well-being all the time. It might be misguided. It might say, oh, this is going to feel good. And then later you say, what was I thinking? Very common. <laughs> the Buddha, it, what, what motivated the Buddha to teach, he, he said, um, as he was, before he decided to teach, it said that he looked around with, with his uh, kind of psychic powers and saw that everybody, everybody wants to be free of suffering and most everybody is doing exactly the things that lead to more suffering. And that's what motivated him to teach. So this is just accessing that place inside of you that is really rooting for your well-being and then understanding where that well-being lies, understanding what true happiness is about. And true happiness is not about things or stuff or getting more, but we can get seduced by it very easily. Here's a, an ad um, that somebody gave to me a while ago called The Gold Shivers. Beautiful woman draped in gold, very, very happy. And here's the ad. The gold shivers, that electric excitement, that thrilling warmth. Every new piece of gold jewelry ignites it once again. <laughs> Nothing makes you feel as good as gold. It's a two-page ad. You can see her on, while I read this. What is the real substance of a new piece of gold jewelry? Emotion, pure and powerful. From the first small shiver of excitement when a shimmering necklace of gold beads catches a woman's eye to the great shivers of delight when the coveted object actually becomes hers. <laughs> Among life's pleasures count this deeply felt euphoria as unique. The only way to get the gold shivers is by getting the gold. It's brilliant, right? <laughs> you might not even care for jewelry, but you look at that and say, I'd like some of that too. <laughs> or you might say, oh, I'm from the Bay Area, you know. I'm a critical consumer. You can't fool me. Or worse, I'm from Berkeley. I'm really a critical consumer. <laughs> and, you know, you can't. But the thing is, it works. That's the, that's the crazy, insane part. It works. As critical consumer you might be, that's why we have beautiful, um, beautiful uh, women who don't think they're thin enough because there's some unrealistic Barbie doll ideal or men that don't feel that they're muscular enough or attractive enough or whatever it is enough because those messages get in. That's why Coca-Cola will pay millions of dollars for 30 seconds of your attention so you can see, ah, happiness in a bottle. That's it. Mm -hmm. 
So you might have this idea uh, as much as you, you think, okay, letting go, that's, that's, the, that's the way, but it's really hard because we get seduced and now it's an art form to, to shape our minds like this. Or you might have the idea that there's so much I need to know, so much I want to take in. And as you're about to leave uh, this refuge and go back into this busy life, I want to also just once again show you, make you aware of what we're up against. This is from a, my favorite writer whose name is Mark Morford. He writes uh, once a week. Anybody read Mark Morford here? One person, he's great. You'll see in a moment. This is from uh, an essay um, he wrote, uh, an excerpt from an essay he wrote uh, a couple of years ago called Hurry Up, Get More Done, and Die. <laughs> Your terrifying word of the day is microtasking, and it comes by way of a relatively humble, ostensibly helpful article I read via one of those perky little do-it-yourself blogs that exists to tell you a million ways to tweak and hack your entire existence to gain maximum productivity, efficiency, and improved overall time management. Because, well, if that's not the true meaning of this manic American life, what is? The advice was horrifyingly simple. When you find yourself pausing in between normal projects and work tasks for anything more than, say, 30 seconds, why not take those tiny moments and, well, do more things? <laughs> I mean, you're just sort of sitting there, right? What sort of things? Fast things, little things, otherwise inconsequential things that you don't care about otherwise, like clearing your junk mail, refilling the stapler, changing your voicemail message, retweeting someone's Twitter blip, or giving a momentary damn about something you need not give a damn about otherwise. But hey, what else are you going to do? Breathe? <laughs> Feel? Merely exist? What are you, a hippie? It's a fascinating and, yes, terrifying idea, really, that if you could just maximize your output a little bit more, if you could cram into all open white space another thing to do, wow, think of all you could get done by the end of the day. Think of how much you could get checked off your list. We are, by and large, utterly terrified of silence, stillness, spaciousness, the doing of nothing so as to feel the totality of everything. Meditation for most is, a disquiet, is disquieting and strange. Deep quiet feels weird and dangerous. Avoid aching to be filled. The internet has us convinced that the world is a roaring fire hose of urgent information and if you can't swallow it all, well, something must be wrong with you. In any 48-hour period in the year 2010, said a stunning article in The Atlantic, more data was created than had been created by all of humanity in the previous 30,000 years up to the year 2005. I read this study and checked it out. In a 48-hour period. By the year 2020, that same amount of data will be created in a single hour. Go ahead, swallow hard.
It's no longer possible to sit quietly on the park bench without checking your Facebook feed, chatting with Siri, and waving to the closed-circuit TV cameras. It's no longer possible to be astonished at the wonder of your footfalls along the forest path and not feel the urge to check email, find the nearest Starbucks, hipstamatic the hell out of that beautiful fallen tree. You can't just sit in your car along a quiet country road without the GPS beeping that you took a wrong, wrong turn as OnStar politely blows up your car. <laughs> How easily we forget time expands time contracts. Work will swell or diminish to fill a given space. You can do 10 things in an hour or one thing in 10. You can go to Spirit Rock Meditation Center for two solid weeks and do absolutely nothing but wander the grounds in silence for 12 hours a day and time will look at you like you're utterly insane as your breath and body thank you for all eternity. You can conversely Microtask until your heart implodes and time merely will laugh and snort and find someone else to destroy. <laughs> so that's, that's what we're up against. This is so radical what we're doing to just unplug and turn our awareness in because this is where the peace that we're looking for can be found. Not to say that we can't enjoy the, the pleasures and the beauty and the blessings of life, but if we're not connected in here, then we're disconnected. So, as I looked back, uh, looked into the teachings of the Buddha, uh, there are three principles that struck me that really were the, the cornerstone of the, this Awakening Joy um, program that I, I like to share. It's basically uh, Buddha Dharma. Um, but, and the three principles that really spoke to me and speak to me, one, Understanding where happiness lies, uh, and that's the teaching on, uh, on wise effort. <clears throat> Understanding how to cultivate happiness, I should say. And wise effort has four components. Two around unwholesome states, guarding against unwholesome states when they, uh, before they arise. Don't put yourself in temptation or harm's way. And when an unwholesome state, unwholesome akusala, meaning a state that's suffering, a state that, is, that leads to more suffering, like greed, hatred, delusion, fear, jealousy, um, uh, all of those, you know those, right? <clears throat> when they arise to learn how to overcome them. And then there's two wise efforts having to do with cultivating wholesome states. The Buddha says, Cultivate a wholesome state if it hasn't arisen, like mindfulness being the best one to cultivate, or loving kindness, compassion, equanimity, patience, all of those wholesome states. And the fourth one is when a wholesome state is here to maintain and increase that wholesome state is a good thing. 
It's a good thing if there's a wholesome state that's here, like joy or love, to maintain and increase that wholesome state. Now, that might leave you scratching your head, say, hold on a moment. What about all this attachment stuff? The, the tricky part is if a wholesome state arises and we have the reaction, oh, I want more, or how do I keep it here? And we grasp, it's just turned into an unwholesome state because grasping is a contraction and all the states of well-being are expansive like wishing well for others or generosity or compassion or joy and all the states of suffering are contraction fear confusion wanting anger the mind and the heart and the body get really tight and agitated so the way to maintain and increase the wholesome, the wholesome state is not to try to hold on to it. That leads to the second principle, how to actually maintain and increase a wholesome state, where in another discourse, the Buddha says, there's a gladness that's connected with a wholesome state. There's a feeling of uplift that gladness, he says, that gladness I call an equipment of mind to overcome all ill will and hostility. That gladness um, delights the heart. One gains inspiration in the meaning, inspiration in the Dhamma. Let me ask you for a moment to just go inside and think of what brings you joy what activity or what, um, what do you, are you involved in that really brings you joy? And remember the last time you were involved in it. And as you remember, just notice how it feels inside, in your body, in your mind, in your heart. You can open up your eyes. Let's just take a, a few responses. What brings you joy? Playing with my dog. Playing with your dog. And how does it feel when you just thought of that? How did it feel inside? Okay, and you're happy, amazed, and and I, I if you can. Uh, get in touch with how it feels inside as well. So happy, yes, yeah. Scuba diving. Scuba diving, and and how did it feel when you thought of it? Um, it's warm and quiet. Warm and quiet. Okay. There's no right answer in this. S something different. Yes, Grace. Singing, one of my favorite. And how do you how do you feel? I can feel my heart beating. Okay, heart beating, feeling alive. Uh huh. Yes. Uh, laughing with a friend. And what's the feeling inside? Like Bubbling over. Yeah. So many. One last one. Dancing. Dancing. And the feeling? Uh, joyful. Joyful. Free. Free. 
joyful. Okay, lots of different ways. There's that gladness, whether it's warm or uh, bubbly or um, whatever your feeling was. Did you notice this kind of, oh, it feels good. That's a good thing. The Buddha said, notice how good that feels. Notice that feeling of gladness. Not, oh, bring it on, but just, oh, it feels so good. And, and he actually gives the example in this discourse. He says, if you're in the middle of a generous act, he recommends thinking to yourself, oh, I'm being generous now. This is the Buddha talking. He's saying, oh, I'm being generous. He's not saying, check it out, you know. <laughs> I hope everybody sees what a generous guy I am. No, that just strengthens your ego. But he's saying, Notice how good it feels for generosity to move through you. Oh, it feels so good. And he says, pay attention to that gladness. Just bring your mindfulness to that gladness. So that's the second principle. One, cultivating a wholesome state. Two, maintaining and increasing by not missing it, not missing how good it feels. And our, our friend Rick Hansen, who... So, who teaches here at Spirit Rock. He was on the board for many years and he's a neuroscience expert, wrote Buddha's Brain and Hardwiring Happiness and all. He recommends when you're feeling that feeling of well-being to spend 15 seconds really taking it in. And this is his little practice. He says, if you do that six times in a day, I know that's 90 seconds of well-being if you can handle it. You know. <laughs> and do that over a two-week period. You will notice a significant shift in your well-being, both because you're deepening those neural pathways in the brain and you're getting into the habit of looking for the good. And it takes some practice to look for the good. We're wired up to scan the horizon for what can go wrong. We have this almond-shaped cluster of neurons in our brain called the amygdala that scans our horizon for danger. And it's a good thing. It preserves the species, but it can be working overtime, particularly when you're stressed, you will more likely be looking for the negative. So it takes some practice to look for the good, and when you do, to not miss it. If you have a habit of looking for what's not wrong, you are going to be at the mercy of what neuroscience calls a confirmation bias, where your brain selectively notices what it is looking for. So if you're looking for how everybody around is going to disappoint you, you'll have ample evidence to confirm that. Or how humanity is going down the tubes, just pick up the paper and you can say, yep, yep. But you'll miss all the goodness around you because your brain doesn't pick up that part. If you look for the fact that people really want to feel safe and be loved and respond to your, your goodwill, you'll notice that too. You'll start to see it everywhere. Or if you look for 
how amazing it is to be alive, you will more likely have lots of evidence to confirm your, your theory. So what you look for is really the key. That leads to the third teaching. One, cultivating wholesome states. Two, noticing the gladness that arises with them. And three, as you practice looking for the good, it becomes more a part of you. And this is the, the Buddha's teaching uh, in one discourse where he says, whatever the practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. Can you argue with that? Whatever you frequently think and ponder upon, that's the inclination of your mind. Neuroscience has a, a simple way of saying that. One of the basic axioms in neuroscience, neurons that fire together, wire together. That's how it works because you start practicing that habit. So these three principles, cultivating wholesome states, being here and, and, letting, and taking in the good, and practicing more and more over time, inclining your mind in that direction, and you will start to um, develop that as a habit of mind. So given that, what I'd like to share a little bit now for the rest of the talk are some different wholesome states that the Buddha talked about as being um, really uh, leading to genuine happiness. And in my, my program, in my, the book, I picked 10 wholesome states that, uh, that the Buddha speaks of, kind of taking out the jargon so it's kind of stealth dharma, but that's basically what it is. And cultivating that wholesome state and then um, being present for it. So I'll mention a few. The first one being the intention for well-being. In the Eightfold Path, right intention or wise intention, maybe you saw it as you go uh, through the, the gate and it's one of the uh, one of the spokes on that wheel, that prayer wheel, wise intention, also known as wise thought. Once you understand where real happiness lies, when you have the intention to go for genuine happiness, that sets your whole life in motion going in the right direction. Wise intention. And particularly, with regard to developing genuine happiness, it can mean putting your happiness in the center as your highest priority. This is not easy for a lot of people because it might seem selfish, it might seem self-indulgent. Dare I put my own happiness first? Notice I'm not saying put your pleasure 
in the center. But genuine well-being to go for, as the Dalai Lama says, the highest happiness to the purpose of life is to be happy, that you do that as a gift to everyone. And particularly if your happiness, the deepest source of happiness, is making a contribution and bringing happiness to others. In his beautiful book, Authentic Happiness by uh, Martin Seligman, he's the father of positive psychology. Uh, and he was the, it started the whole positive psychology movement. Um, he, uh, he says that the greatest happiness comes from identifying your own gifts and offering them to the world. That's authentic happiness. So everybody wins, but to have the intention to go for your own well-being, this is something that takes some uh, clear decision and choice. And I, uh, I wanna share with you uh, a story from, um, from a b book that I love to recommend called How We Choose to Be Happy by my friends Rick Foster and Greg Hicks, who uh, researched over a three-year period uh, 300, 320 certifiably happy people. Um, <laughs> and they would, they would uh, go to a town and say, who's the happiest person in this town? And uh, people would say, oh, Shirley, she's pretty happy. And then they'd ask Shirley, you happy? Yeah, pretty happy. And then they'd, they'd ask if they could... Uh, speak to people who know you uh, in your work or your family. And if everybody said, Shirley's pretty happy, they'd say, why are you so happy? And they distilled nine choices of these happy people, how we choose to be happy. And uh, the book is filled with these stories. And the first choice is intention. And this is Adele's story. You might think, oh, well, these are people that just born with a silver spoon in their mouth or just who had it good and that's not so. Adele, in one horrible 24-month period, my life evaporated. I lost everything. My house burned down to the ground. It was the Oakland fire in 1991. Leaving me with nothing, no clothes, photos, furniture, no material reminder of my previous life, during that time, both of my parents died unexpectedly. My husband left me for a younger woman. At the same time, my restaurant went bankrupt. My best friend moved to Seattle. Even the dog died. <laughs> and I know that laughter. It's like, oh my God, what can I do? It's like, it's too much. And she goes on saying, I had nothing. I was so filled with grief I thought maybe God was somehow preparing me to die. Everything was gone. Maybe this was some monumental lesson in letting go and that I should let my life go too. But as my initial shock began to clear, a feeling that I wanted to live outweighed all of my thoughts about death. I began to see there was hope among the ashes. There was one big opportunity here. I had a clean slate. As long as I had to start over and create a whole new life, I was going to create a happy one. I wanted to feel whole. 
I was sure that I wanted to embrace everything in life, the good and the bad. I wanted a feeling of contentment and to feel rested and gentle. I wanted to feel unafraid, to feel I could handle anything that came my way. And I wanted to feel this way for the rest of my life. In spite of my grief, I could see that this all added up to happiness for a lifetime. It wasn't a quick switch. It took her, as they say in the book, and, and Rick and Greg have told me, talked about, about her to me, it took her about five years to just process all of it. She had a commitment not to numb herself out. That was the one thing. But just to feel everything and to have the intention to hold it and come out into well-being. And they say she's one of these people, you, she walks into a room and she lights up the room. The intention for true well-being and happiness. So before I go on, I want to make it um, re relevant to you and just ask you to go inside for a moment and just imagine getting better and better at noticing all the goodness in your life and getting more and more skilled at awakening all the love and the contentment and the generosity of heart and the joy, even the joy inside. Just imagine maybe a year from now or two years or more what your life might look like as you continued to develop that for yourself and for everybody else in your life. You might have an image more and more as that commitment to well-being manifests. And if it seems like a worthwhile project, see if you can get in touch with the decision to do your part to help that come about. No timetable, no pass-fail, but just putting true well-being in the center of your life as a gift to yourself and everybody else. And letting life support you in that. If you could get in touch with even a, a glimpse of, yeah, I want to go for it. There's no turning back. You might forget, but your continued connection with that will be such a great gift to everybody, especially if it includes sharing your goodness with the world. So that's where it starts out with the intention for true well-being. The second aspect 
that I'll just mention briefly, we've talked about it this whole week, is mindfulness. Because mindfulness has a unique property of weakening all the unwholesome states and strengthening all the wholesome states. It's the, it's the one mental factor that does both, weakens the unwholesome and strengthens the wholesome. And when there is a wholesome state, when you apply mindfulness to it, it increases, amplifies that wholesome state. Another um, aspect of this is as we've been talking about um, opening up to the difficult as a path to joy. As the Buddha has in, in one of his teachings, he says, suffering can be a causative factor for faith to arise. Faith can lead to gladness. Gladness can lead to joy, can lead to happiness, contentment, peace, all the way to full awakening. But suffering can lead to faith. And it's been talked about how he mentioned it and, and Sharda mentioned it. Let me ask you, how many people have been motivated or moved by their own pain or suffering to look for answers and find a, a deeper meaning in their life because they've encountered suffering. So look around you. That's how it works. Isn't that interesting? It's the last thing you'd want to wish on somebody. I hope you learned a lot of lessons this lifetime, you know. But that's how it works. That if we, and we've been so fortunate to be exposed to tools and teachings that can transform that suffering into compassion, into depth, into joy, because we are opening, willing to open up to all of life. So don't underestimate when you're going through a hard time. There's often, there's usually a gift there if you can let yourself feel it and find some meaning in it. Another wholesome state, I'll just mention, uh, there's, there's, you know, I can't put it all, a five-month course in, uh, in an hour, but um, uh, one that has been mentioned and Howie talked about, uh, just mentioned briefly last night, is living with integrity, what's called the bliss of blamelessness in the teachings. The, the Buddha says, uh, oh yeah, I think he said it in, in, your, uh, in your talk. In one discourse, he says, there are a number of kinds of happiness that anybody can relate to. Happiness of being free of debt, very practical. Happiness of having enough so that you can take care of your loved ones. A third happiness, happiness that, uh, that comes from being so fortunate and prosperous that you can be generous with those that you don't even know. And then the fourth is this bliss of blamelessness where you are living aligned with your values. And in this discourse, he says, compared to the bliss of blamelessness, those first three are not one-sixteenth as potent a source of well-being. I don't know how he figured that out, <laughs> but that's what it says in the discourse. 
But, and it's true that if you're not aligned with your values, it, it doesn't matter how good you have it, there's something off inside. And of course, we're not saints, so we make mistakes and we blow it. But the idea is to keep on learning and to keep on making a commitment to face in the right direction. As one of my heroes, Julia Butterfly Hill says, as long as you're learning, there's no mistakes. So that acting with integrity, and every time you do, choose the high road. Don't miss, oh, this feels really good. I'll just briefly mention some of the others and then close with, with one particular story. There's the joy of letting go every time you can let go and relinquish instead of wanting more and share generosity or uh, not being so caught up in, in the wanting mind. There's a freedom in that. There's the joy that comes from learning to love ourselves which is a very profound thing to do. And so many people here, it's the usual challenge and hurdle for people coming into practice because it's the usual challenge and hurdle for about 98% of humanity to really get who you are. And if you get who you are, then you're not spending time hoping that everybody else will validate you and say, yeah, you're really okay. You know. Imagine meeting somebody who really got you, who really uh, understood your sense of humor and appreciated your taste and really understood your take on things, who really got you. How would you feel about meeting somebody like that? Pretty good, wouldn't you? There's one person that gets every joke that goes through your head. <laughs> Only one. Unfortunately, they're right inside your own body. So it's this, Albert Einstein has this, this expression, an optical delusion of consciousness that we don't get who we are from the inside. But if you met yourself on the outside, you'd be saying, where have you been all my life? <laughs> so get to know yourself. Maybe get to know yourself as your best friends see you. Who does your best friend see when they love being with you? They see something that shines through that you might not be aware of at all. So loving ourselves, connecting with others, and sharing our love, compassionate action in the world, and I'll talk more about that, I think, a bit tomorrow. And the one thing I want to end with is um, what I put as the third of these ten, which is a grateful heart. Gratitude is a very direct way to open up to all the goodness if you're busy kind of grumbling and complaining, oh, this is wrong and that's wrong, there's no way for all the goodness to be received. As one Tibetan teacher says, when you say thank you, it's like you're putting out your satellite dish and then you can receive all the blessings from life. Gratitude 
is so powerful. And just a little exercise to show how mindfulness on top of that wholesome state deepens it. So just uh, once again, close your eyes for a moment and think of some blessing in your life, someone who you are grateful for in your life or grateful to, or some situation in your life, some circumstance, some blessing, and have an image perhaps of that person or that life circumstance. And as you connect with that blessing, just a very simple, silent, sincere thank you right from your heart. Thank you. And now let yourself just delight, enjoy in that thank you. Notice how it feels. Thank you. Just bring awareness to the grateful heart, feeling it in your body, in your heart, your mind. Take a breath. And one more blessing. Someone or something that you feel grateful for, grateful to, have an image. And again, a simple thank you right from your heart. Thank you. And let yourself feel it. Thank you. Just bring your awareness to that feeling. You don't have to squeeze anything else out of it. Just, oh, thank you. Feels so good. That's applying mindfulness to that wholesome state. Okay, you can open your eyes. And I'll, I'll just leave you with um, one story about the fact that it is possible to change, even if you might not get so uh, be so used to uh, cultivating these wholesome states. And it's, it's the, my favorite story of all. Uh, some of you have heard it or have seen uh, the story of my mother um, who uh, passed away a couple of years ago at, at the age of 94. Uh, my mom is a YouTube star. How many people have seen my mother video? Okay. If you go to... Um, Confessions of a Jewish Mother. <laughs> and the subtitle is How My Son Ruined My Life. <laughs> it's up to like 480,000 views or so because she's very funny. And I was, uh, uh, the story, and I, I, I included in the book, uh, takes place when um, I was writing the book and I was writing the chapter on gratitude. And I was visiting my mother in L.A., uh, and she lived near my sister, who she was very close with in, uh, in Santa Monica, my sister lived. And uh, my sister was going away for a few weeks and we agreed, oh, I'd visit mom, who was 89 at the time. And uh, I had all this research on gratitude, that was the chapter I was writing, and I shared it with her. And I said, hey, listen to this, mom. It's better health, your immune system is better, better relationships, you take care of your body. It was just pages and pages of the benefits of gratitude. My mom, as you can see in the YouTube video, uh, she had 
perfected her genes of being a Jewish mother, which means that she was uh, a kvetch, is the word in Yiddish. She complained about most everything. Yeah. <laughs> but had a great sense of humor. And I said, Mom, what do you think of this? And she said, it's very impressive. I said, hey, Mom, what do you think about having a gratitude practice? She rolled her eyes and said, James, dear, I know my life is very blessed, but I've been practicing seeing the glass half empty for a long time, and I don't think I'm about to change now. And I said, just something inspired me. I said, well, let me ask you, Mom, if you could change, would you change? She said, yeah, if I could, I would, but don't hold your breath on it. <laughs> and I said, let's play a game, okay? Every time you complain, you say your life is blessed, I'll just remind you. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, suppose you say, oh, it's so cold here in Marina del Rey. <laughs> and I say, and? And you say, and my life is very blessed. <laughs> and she had, the, she had that kind of, she liked to play games a lot. She said, okay, we'll play the game. We had the most amazing week as the complaints just rolled off her tongue <laughs> one after another, and each time I'd catch it, you know, oh, this TV reception is so lousy, and, oh yeah, and my life is very blessed. <laughs> and we laughed the whole week, right? And I kept it up. I called a lot those first couple of weeks. Hi, Mom, how you doing? Uh, and, oh yeah, and my life is blessed. And a friend of hers kept it up with her at, at home. My sister, who had the same tendency as my mom, <laughs> she came home and one of her first comments was, what did you do to mom? <laughs> she wasn't particularly thrilled. It took her a little while, but um, amazingly, it stuck for the last five years of her life. And I include in the book, not only the story, but a poem that she wrote me about seven months after this game started. And she was losing her, eye, her eyesight to macular degeneration. There's a reference to it in the poem. And this is what she wrote. We, we would always uh, ex write poems to each other in our family for our, our birthdays. So this is her poem to me for my birthday, part of it. 90 is just fine with me. I no longer rant and rave about where the world is heading and my exclusive job to save. I wallow in contentment and know that I'm blessed, awakening to the joy of living at its best. I'm happier than I've ever been and truly mean each word. The thoughts that cause the worries now all seems so absurd. Though my eyesight has been dimmed, I see clearer than before. The glass is not half empty. It's overflowing to be sure. If my mom can change <laughs> at 89, anyone can change. All it takes is the decision to go for it 
and to notice all the good in your life and to pay attention to it and then let it awaken the goodness and the joy in you so you can share it with the world. So let's just take a moment to let the words settle. Thank you for your attention. So about 25 minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.